the Puget Sound podcast where I'm talking to members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker and my guest today is Monica DeHart, a professor of sociology and anthropology. As always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. Here's Monica. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Elena. It's fun to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you. I'd like to start with a little bit of context setting because I think for many people, both in the general public and in high school students thinking about going to college, it can be kind of obscure what a professor does. Mm -hmm. People's touch point, I think, is a teacher in high school. And then this image of sort of the tweed clad, pipe smoking, ivory tower intellectual. So maybe to kick things off, what does it mean to you to be a professor and what do you actually do in your job? Mm-hmm. Great question. I uh, And I can answer that because I actually never planned on being a professor. I had no idea what they did either. And it never fit in what I would have imagined to be my professional uh, trajectory. Uh, I had um, imagined doing development work in Latin America, getting my hands dirty, being out in the landscape and working with people every day. Um, I never imagined something that was what I imagined to be this sort of rarefied thinkers uh, running around in books and and being totally disassociated with the world. Um, That was partly because I didn't uh, have a lot of experience in college in my family, Um, but it was also because, again, uh, I just imagined myself a doer rather than a a thinker. Um, But What I came to learn um, through grad school and uh, as I began to teach um, is that being a professor allowed me to be a doer uh, and a thinker at the same time. Um, In my job, what I get to do is teach courses primarily, uh, and that may sound kind of mechanical, but really what it means is I get to take things that I care about and that are of interest to me and develop a whole semester worth of conversations about them. I get to pick books that I want to read and books that I think students will want to read and conversations that we want to have and you know, <clears throat> schedule something that will really look like um, an evolution of both of our thinking um, over time about that. Um, and I really, really love that. I love the community of the teaching. I love the creativeness of the teaching. Uh, students that have had me will know that I don't like to just sit still. I like to move around and do in the classroom, uh, whether it's mapping, drawing, um, acting out stuff. And so, um, you know, I get to do a lot of the doing in my teaching. Um, the other thing that I do as a professor is research, um, and that's also um, very active. Uh, for me, research means fieldwork in Latin America, and usually most summers, I'm down there for the majority of the summer in Central America. Um, doing interviews, uh, participating in events, um, trying to get a sense of different kinds of landscapes or contexts. So lately I've been studying China's impact on um, economic development in Central America. That might be going to trade expos, that might be going to development projects like infrastructure um, construction sites, that might be talking to engineers and politicians, um, doing all sorts of other stuff. Um, And so you can see how that would appeal to the doer in me. Uh, I get to be on the ground talking to folks um, and, and being in their world and trying to understand the really important things that are happening from their perspective. Uh, Finally, just one last thing I get to do as a professor is I get to work with students one-on-one. So I get to really understand what they want to do in the world, how they see these courses as helping or hindering them, uh, and helping them um, plot a course forward. And I love being at a small school because I actually get to know the students well enough to do that with a little bit of um, 
insight, as opposed to just thinking of students as, as random people out there in the world. With those three hemispheres, how much overlap is there in the Venn diagram of that work? Uh, I would say a ton. Um, and that's what makes it really exciting because, again, I create courses usually based on things that I'm interested in thinking about for my research. So uh, over the last few years, when I started developing a China and Latin America research project, I developed a China Latin America course. Uh, most of my work is on economic development in Latin America. I teach a cultural politics of development course. Um, so there's a lot of cross-fertilization in those spaces. Um, I would also say um, that my teaching is crucial to my research and vice versa, because in teaching, you have to really figure out how to translate complicated ideas um, that you have about what's happening um, or, or ideas, scholarly ideas, into something that um, is palpable and, and um, concrete and makes sense and that can be engaged by a wider audience, um, not just something that lives in your head. So um, I find that going back and forth between the research and the classroom, students make me think of things in different ways, and I have to think of different ways of talking about it in order to um, teach it. Just by way of illustration, walk us through one of those classes in one of those courses that you've mentioned, or maybe another class you teach. What are some of the big themes that you untangle? How would a semester unfold, roughly, in your classroom? Hmm. I don't want to give away my trade secrets. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, um, I, I, I probably do have a pattern, but I like to imagine, um, especially this year, I'm feeling like I don't want to adhere to those at all. Um, so where you might imagine a normal course starting with some kind of big context background and then moving chronologically through themes or theories or topics, um, that, that can often be the way it's done. Um, I find that especially right now, what I want to do is start my class with big ideas that we're all grappling with that are in all of our worlds. Um, and so, you know, whether it's a development class or a research methods class or an introductory class, um, we're all living in the world of pandemic. We're all living in the world of racialized violence. We're all living in the world of inequality. Um, engaging those things right out front and imagining how they might shape our conversations about all these other disciplinary and theoretical and conceptual ideas um, is important to me because ultimately, um, if we can't use what we're learning here to engage those things, to me, it's not very useful. Um, so I want the classroom to be a space where we can kind of um, really grapple with those things. I like to call it wallowing in the muck a little bit with ideas rather than um, being tested on whether you have the right answer or not. Really thinking about um, how can we work through the real complexity and challenges not to get to the right place, uh, but to work through what are our own ethical positions, our own intellectual positions in, rela in relationship to really, really challenging thorny issues that shape our world. You know, it's interesting that that's what you thought of, because this is another thing that I think is sometimes obscured in the zeitgeist or in the public imagination about college and the liberal arts generally. Oftentimes, I talk to students or families who are excited about the idea of the interdisciplinary approach in the liberal arts, are excited about the small scale, but have concerns about, you know, how am I going to apply this? Where is this going to intersect with the world today? And where am I going to be learning Latin, which I might like very much to do, which might stimulate my brain, but feels to me like sort of an ivory tower mm -hmm. pursuit. One of the things that's always struck me about Puget Sound, in particular about the SOAN department at Puget Sound, is a real 
intentionality about wanting to take disciplinary methods and apply them to contemporary questions and issues and really know that that is crucial mm-hmm. um, rather than ancillary to some of those conversations and skill building. Right. And, you know, whether you're talking, so in an anthropology class, maybe you're talking about uh, religion or food or um, popular cultural practices, what it does is leave you not just with some random information that's good for Thanksgiving dinner table, um, but rather a way of imagining the world that really decenters our sense of what's normal and natural and makes us ask why those things are the way they are. Um, it also gives us a sort of a systemic view of things because on the one hand, we all tend to really focus on our own experiences and our own identity and see the world through that lens or maybe our family's lens, but being able to understand how larger structures the legal system, the healthcare system, um, shape those individual experiences or community experiences um, in really patterned ways over time is so important. And whether you're gonna become then an attorney, uh, immigration attorney or a doctor, um, whether you're gonna go into technology and need to understand again, systems thinking, um, problem solving, all of these things are completely relevant. Um, And so anthropology, I feel of course, is the best place to get those. But I think a liberal arts education in general makes you think that way and really asks you to be able to connect dots um, that you're gonna have to do over and over again in the real world Uh, in ways that go far beyond the subject material you're dealing with in a particular class. Well, and interestingly, so I've said many, many times on the podcast that I was a SOAN major at Puget Sound. My heart is really with the anthropologists. And I still remember the moment in my senior year, and I know right where I was because I was walking from McIntyre, the building that has the SOAN department in it, to the library. And it was probably after class. And I remember having this thought about a paper I was going to write. And almost stopping dead, that might be a little too rhetorical to be true, mm-hmm. and realizing how how much smarter I had gotten, mm-hmm. that I was asking a better question, a really sophisticated critical question, that I was organizing my thoughts about it in a way that I just could not have done three years earlier when I came to college. And it was really striking to me because some of that learning is by necessity gradual. Mm-hmm. When what you're working on is the kind of critical skills that you just illustrated and not as much the sort of memorizing the Thanksgiving dinner trivia information. It, it, it sneaks up on you. But it was striking to me to realize at the end of those four years just how much more sophisticated of a thinker I was, that I was a better writer. I was a more concise writer at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be a hard thing to get your arms around from the beginning. Yes. But it's much easier looking back mm-hmm. to see that trajectory. And we hear from employers all the time that they see that difference between students that are liberal arts students and students that go through other kinds of um, educational programs that don't promote that kind of critical thinking. And the other thing I'll say is because of my teaching again, I get to know students from day one through day, through year four. So I also can say, dang, Elena, you're writing, you're thinking, you know, I mean, we have the sense of trajectory and can actually make students see that, I think, I hope, in a way that um, doesn't just rely on epiphanies uh, near the library, but really um, gives you a sense of reinforcement from people who know your work and see it evolving over time. And probably push you and poke you a little bit more than you'd like at certain moments, but ultimately with the goal of getting you to that place where you um, have that critical consciousness. I actually still remember a comment you wrote on on one of my papers for one of your classes that was, I thought, one of the best, nicest pieces of constructive feedback anybody has ever given me. 
you had this nice little note, I know, to put you on the spot um, about the thing I remember most clear is you said this, your writing is what I call the New Yorker style. It's very readable. It's a really nice evolution and organization, but this is an academic paper and you should make your point more directly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was exactly right. Killing right? creativity, one paper at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it was such a great thing for me to hear because I've always been a natural writer. I don't struggle with words. It's very easy for me to craft a narrative. And to have somebody say to me, you know, that's really good, but there's a distinction between that type of writing and this type of writing. Mm-hmm. What was a moment for me, was really something to learn that I think I maybe would not have realized had somebody not said it to me. Mm. Well, good. Thanks. I'm glad it was a positive thing. <laughs> but don't let go of the, of the descriptive writing. That's beautiful and a skill that I think everybody should also um, develop. So. Mm-hmm talk to you a little bit too about the architecture of the department. So we've been referring to SOAN and the sociology and anthropology department. Um, but of course, those are two distinct disciplines. Mm-hmm. You a little bit about what that means and how the department operates at Puget Sound? So, um, you know, if you're just coming into college, you may not be aware of what sociology or anthropology is. Those are not uh, disciplines that you would normally have in, um, in your high school. You might have them kind of wrapped into something called social studies. Um, sociology and anthropology both stem from similar kinds of origins uh, during the Enlightenment thinking and uh, lots of folks trying to understand how to make sense of the world and the big changes that were happening then um, and trying to figure out how we could study people and societies and institutions and communities and cultures in a way that would help us do that. Um, I'm going to do a vulgar reduction of of the two disciplines to say that while sociology tended in that first moment to take on questions of the industrialized countries and questions of urban transformation and quote-unquote modern society, anthropology originally uh, was the discipline that sort of took up the questions of culture and um, difference in those places that were non-industrialized and um, didn't seem to follow the same kinds of cultural traditions of Western modernity. Um, those two, dis- those, that distinction I think is long gone. Um, but what is interesting is that both of the disciplines are interested in understanding the social world um, and the way that it shapes us and the way that it shapes um, our communities, our practices, um, our structures and institutions. Um, so while psychology might look inside at the cognitive, right, or biology might also think a little bit about those um, internal processes, we're really thinking about how folks interact with the social world around them, um, both changing it and being changed by it. Um, anthropology, I, I would say, um, tends to really focus on the ethnography, which is um, a field research method based on participant observation and interview. Um, But our department is structured around teaching students both um, quantitative research methods, how to do surveys and so forth, and that qualitative stuff. Um, It's centered around teaching them some um, basics of the two disciplines and allowing them to explore thematics uh, like cities, like gender, like development, like medicine, um, in terms of how we might understand them through these um, two lenses. Um, So it really tries to give students a a balanced view of two disciplines that work really well together. Uh, But as you said, you uh, confessed your affinity for anthropology. Some students find kind of more of a trajectory with one or another. We don't make you choose. Uh, We're happy to let you straddle the line, Um, but it ends up being a great conversation no matter where you go because you see how those two methods and theories and ideas reinforce themselves. 
that I think is also maybe important to know just about college and college coursework in general is that you can sort of de facto specialize even within your department. So the variety of classes that are taught and the variety of topics allow you to gravitate towards classes, individual classes that are about specific things that might be interesting to you. So it won't be that everybody takes for the SOAN major the exact same 10 classes. You might be able to sort of, through your course selection, de facto specialize in any number of things. Yes, or not specialize. So some right. that want to be promiscuous and want to just sort of, you know, try it all out can do that. Others that really want to um, cut a line through a particular um, theme or um, disciplinary specialization can. And I find increasingly that um, students really benefit from um, putting these kinds of uh, classes in conversation with, for example, if they're interested in gender and um and uh, identity, a, a gender and uh, queer studies minor, or other classes around campus that help them to think about these things from others' perspectives as well. So that it is a really kind of panoramic and robust idea of those themes that's built on um, some of the specialization we do here, but also extends itself out into those other um, programs. What do bakeries, industrial design, waterproof notebook paper, and investment management for cryptocurrencies have to do with each other? Hi, I'm Ryan Del Rosario, Assistant Director of Admission and School of Music Admission Coordinator. All four of the things I listed are businesses that were founded by entrepreneurial Puget Sound alums, and you can find out more at pugetsound.edu stories. Now back to P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. talk about what anthropology is and what sociology is and how they work in the contemporary world. You alluded to this earlier, but one thing I ran into identifying myself as an anthropology major in college to people like my parents' friends was this sense that that would mean that I had a lot of discrete knowledge about individual indigenous groups, right? Well, are you studying fill in the blank here, right? The Puyallup Nation, Kuyu people, what can you tell me about? blank indigenous group. One thing that was fascinating to me about contemporary anthropology is that it tends not to be geographically bounded in that way. You mentioned earlier that some of your work is on China's impact on economic development in Latin America. That feels to me extremely reflective of the current moment and the way that the world is. Can you speak a little bit to maybe how the discipline has evolved into that space and mm-hmm. the kind of ways that someone could just conceptualize the work that an anthropologist does today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked because, you know, I think anthropology has some very problematic foundations, uh, you know, rooted in, um, in trying to understand indigenous cultures that they assumed were disappearing, but were not. We're just being ravaged by uh, settler societies, but we're not being, um, we're not disappearing. Um, and, um, and imagining them to be these sort of discrete little places on the map. And so you kind of specialize in your own discrete little place on the map. Um, luckily, I think anthropology with a lot of soul searching and a lot of debate has um, grown into a much more critical discipline that one, as you said, um, acknowledges that the things that we wanna understand about identity, about community, um, about culture can almost never be tacked down to one place on the map and are usually spread out across a wide variety of spaces 
or at the very least are influenced by all sorts of global connections that happen through a particular space. So anthropology is much more um, globalized uh, in thinking about what questions are interesting and also where to study those things. Uh, so that quote unquote field work, as I mentioned earlier, might take place in multiple spaces, uh, China, Central America, and so forth. Um, but it also might take place in different kinds of places than we assumed would be field sites like marine biology labs uh, or craft cheese uh, producer farms in Vermont. Um, what we consume, you know, consider to be um, some of the um, spaces that are ripe for investigation have shifted. Um, the other thing I'll say quite a bit um, change has happened around uh, who practices anthropology and where they can practice it. Um, as you also mentioned, Anthropology has historically been about people from the West going elsewhere to um, study groups other than their own. And um, luckily, one of the things that's increasingly changed about anthropology, although needs a lot more work, um, is a, a much bigger uh, diversification of who, who practices anthropology. It's actually one of the disciplines with the largest um, representation of women and um, scholars of color. And uh, really tends to be one now that embraces the idea that you can study your own culture and study your own spaces in ways that will bring a critical and important edge. And maybe not just a scientific or objective one, but actually a transformational one, right? Um, thinking about the way that um, the studies that we do might actually lead to changes in inclusion, in equity, in anti-racism, in development, and whatever those, um, those ideals are, rather than just being flies on the wall and observing. Did you come to your own work and your own research interests? When you said a couple of years ago, you began this idea of China and Latin America. Where did that come from? It came from doing field work. Uh, you know, I've been working in Central America and Guatemala um, since I was an undergraduate, actually doing solidarity work there, and then did my dissertation work there. And um, one of the main principles I would say for me and for anthropology is learning from the space, uh, not going in and assuming you know something already, but learning from what people tell you and learning from what you see happening there and taking those things seriously. Um, and after I had been looking at um, indigenous development initiatives in, in Central America for quite some time, um, looking around at the landscape, what I saw and what I heard people talking about was China. Um, Chinese yeah. products flooding the market, um, Chinese money hopefully being available through both tourism and investment, um, worries about you know the shifts in the global landscape, U.S. Uh, power that used to be really heavy and, and, um, and violent in the area suddenly kind of retracting, and uh, Latin America looking to other places to understand where the center of power was going to be. So it just in many ways evolved uh, from conversations I would have about pe with people um, to thinking and projects that were happening on the ground when I'd say, who's funding that? Uh, increasingly, it wasn't Spain or Norway or the US, but you know, um, different kinds of Chinese, Korea, uh, other Asian countries that had not historically been donors and China especially coming on really strong in that space. One of the things that's so interesting about that to me is I think for people living in the US who spend much of their time in the US, those kinds of global processes are often obscured because we have such a forceful narrative um, within this country's borders of this country's international presence and what that means. Yep. That to go outside them and suddenly to have this experience of, you know, not only how other countries see the United States, not through that lens, but also the way in which that landscape is shifting has felt to me and I think others um, 
Like it is really distinct from the way that you maybe think about international relations or think about the world from within this country. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, uh, in Central America, there was a longstanding sense of U.S. presence as being the dominant presence. And I mean, militarily, I mean, in terms of aid, uh, I also mean in terms of military presence um, and supporting of anti-communist stuff. But even in terms of culture, like TV, people are watching products people want to consume, where they want to travel. Um, And one of the interesting questions has been, as the United States foreign policy has really shifted away from focusing on maintaining any semblance of a partnership with with many countries in Latin America, um, this kind of shift as folks question, where are our allegiances? The cultural affinity is still definitely there, but I think there's a realization that the the world as it's changing uh, will no longer pivot around the United States and that there has to be a sort of multi um, stranded uh, strategy to work with other countries and uh, and a real, in some ways, fear about how to come to know these other partners that have historically not been partners and who feel so culturally different, uh, but clearly have the means now to make the big transformations in the region. This is kind of a reductive question, but as you see that shift happening, is it is China sort of fitting itself into a United States-shaped hole where you know previously the U.S. would have funded this project and now China is funding it, or is even the the form and the infrastructure for that kind of exchange and relationship shape shifting also? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because some people have asked, you know, is China really a different kind of international actor, or is it just late to the game? And it's in the same thing the U.S. did, but just at an earlier moment in our trajectory, right? Um, and I would say probably a little both and. Um, on the one hand, you know, China is certainly trying to be a good international actor the way um, one is supposed to be these days, which is joining multilateral institutions in the region, doing humanitarian aid, lots of COVID um, support, humanitarian support with masks and other things, showing themselves to be a good partner that way. Um, but the way they're doing development work is often, um, you know, infrastructure and energy-based projects. Um, the investment structures are different. They're coming, you know, from Chinese banks, uh, state banks, and um, Asian infrastructure banks. Um, they're not working through the same kind of Western financial institutions. Uh, they have been in the past working just state to state. So where the U.S. got really comfortable with working with local NGOs and community participation, um, China was like, no, nope, we'll work with government. Uh, and uh, now are increasingly working with private business, um, but still uh, tend not to do the kind of grassroots um, negotiations of those things. Uh, and China's starting to get on board with really thinking about how to comply with global norms of environmental protection and labor but I think there's still a lot of tension around um, each project and how it's negotiated and um, and policed in terms of compliance with those things. So again, not to say that the United States was never uh, non-compliant with those kinds of things. I think we have lots of examples of that, uh, but people seem to worry in particular about China um, not having the same kind of ethical um, investment in those issues and being more focused on the bottom line. And uh, I don't think they're able to do that as much uh, with the growing negotiations that are happening with Latin American partners who are insisting on it. Mm-hmm. And is most of that presence top down? I mean, I knew you mentioned sort of state to state relationships, or is any of it bottom up, grassroots? I'm thinking of, you know, diasporic populations or even the private sector and industry. Yeah. So, what's fascinating to me, and this is uh, the subject, some of the subject of my new book, uh, is that. There, there's both, and they seem to operate at different registers. So, mm-hmm. official um, uh, People's Republic of China 
development money and negotiations happen from the you know top level to the top level or from top level to private industry. Um, meanwhile, all along for you know decades now, there has been an ongoing transnational sort of entrepreneurial and commercial network uh, between Chinese diasporic communities in Latin America and companies in Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and mainland China. And so those you know, connections have been constant and uh, tend not to be tapped into by these new agreements. They seem to kind of run parallel to one another. And one of the things I think will be fascinating is to what extent Latin American governments um, begin to tap into their local diasporas to help them bridge some of that gap because right now they tend not to uh, be in conversation. And so uh, it seems to me a loss in terms of forging some better relations, but uh, not happening so much at the moment. You mentioned a few moments ago in passing sort of COVID-19 as a way in which China is engaging with Central America and engaging regionally. But I'm curious about what that means for you too, given that anthropology is a discipline that rests on being around people. I imagine this is a... um, for lack of a better word, a weird moment to to be an anthropologist. That's exactly right. I was grounded this summer uh, in a way that I haven't <laughs> been in a long time. I usually said my summer's down in Central America, and that is just not a possibility. Uh, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and uh, Costa Rica, where I've been doing work, have been closed to foreign you know tourism and and travel, um, and they've had the similar kinds of lockdowns as we have. So um, those traditional means of fieldwork have not been available, and probably will not be available in the way that we've known them for a while. Um, so it really has been about rethinking what ethnography is and how we can connect with folks. Uh, with some of my more um, middle-class and elite interlocutors, we can do Zoom meetings, we can FaceTime, we can connect that way. But with other partners who don't have the same access to technology or for whom um, state surveillance of their technology use um, or other things is is an issue, it's really not a substitute. Um, So there's uh, been a a breakdown, I would say, in some of those means of of connecting and a lot of creative problem solving as we all wring our hands and try to imagine ways to um, reinvent the wheel and, and create connections. The good thing about that is, like I said, it brings to the fore the questions of inequality that have always been part of field work and has you grapple with those in new ways. Um, but also, uh, again, I'm thinking about students, uh, even in our institution here, who had summer research grants and weren't able to go do those, or graduate students doing theses who are not able to do those. Um, there's lots of people who have found their work um, you know, hampered by this and, and are searching for new solutions and creative answers in the meantime. On that note, I'm curious to take us back to to the Venn diagram that we started with. Mm-hmm. We release a podcast every week. One of the things that obviously has come up all spring has been the pandemic and the way that that has impacted teaching and learning and everybody sort of scrambling to figure out how it was going to work and what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. As think about teaching this fall and this year, how has the pandemic and the coronavirus impacted that for you? shifted how you've approached your classes, structured your time differently even? Mm-hmm. For my classes, uh, it, it has had a huge impact. I mean, we all improvise in the spring, but uh, for me, as I mentioned earlier, the community 
component of the classroom is crucial. So really trying to imagine what it would take to create that online uh, has been a central part of my thinking. Uh, and in some ways that's meant rethinking, again, assignments and readings, um, readings that we could spend a lot of time together in class pouring over that were difficult and, and I felt important because uh, they, they provided some important background. Um, now the question for me becomes, are there ways to engage those things in different ways that allow us to spend more time conversing about it and engaging it in a kind of creative, active way as opposed to just pouring over the text? Um, so, so it's been a good exercise uh, for updating and changing pedago pedagogies uh, and also um, trying to think about the classroom time together in a, in a dramatically different way. It's much about the community time as it is about the learning outcome time. Um, I think I, like everybody too, is struggle, struggling with how to restructure time. Uh, I know I, uh, I'm a sort of compulsive calendarer and uh, the, the need to sort of have some way to organize all these Zoom commitments and class times and office hours without having a physical space in which it's all sort of connected has been a real challenge. And uh, so I'm open to suggestions. Send me your best practices uh, about best ways to, to regain some sense of a regular march of time in a moment that feels like a lot of time-space compression. That is, time-space compression is perhaps the perfect way to say it. Mm -hmm. I was in a meeting the other day and I was saying, I think I maybe said last week, I referred to something that had happened last week and I went later and looked at my calendar and it had happened four weeks previously. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. No thread. One thing I wanna just tease out of your answer that I think is really important is I've been hearing a lot of anxiety in particular from incoming students who don't yet have relationships with faculty, who don't yet have relationships with their peers, but also from some of our continuing students about what will this look like, right? You know, part of what I care about is getting to be in that community in the classroom. That's part of why I came to a place like Puget Sound. Yeah. You know, what is this, what happens now, right? And it was so striking to me in your answer how, um, very intentional you've been in thinking about that. And of course, I wouldn't have expected anything else from you or your colleagues, but I think that's an important thing for people to hear, mm -hmm. right? That it's not just the same old syllabus on Zoom. And it's also not, you know, sort of a boilerplate online course mm -hmm. that folks are really looking for the sweet spot between the kinds of classes that we offer at Puget Sound and the kind of experience and something that will be feasible. Mm -hmm. um, and positive and accessible online. Mm -hmm. I was talking to one of my first year advisees the other day and uh, I know she had been imagining potentially staying, well, she is staying home, but you know, taking classes at a local community college and just sort of waiting to start. Uh, and uh, she had taken some courses like that in high school. Um, and as we were doing a Zoom session face-to-face uh, -face right now, sort of talking through her options, I said, let me ensure you, nothing that you've had so far in terms of online learning will look like the remote learning we're doing. You and I, right? what we're doing right now, this is what our classroom is going to be like. We are remote from one another, but it's not online learning. There's nothing about this that's a modular, you know, prepackaged thing. This is going to um, reflect the same kinds of dynamics in the classroom um, that we can reproduce online uh, and really seek, again, for me at least, to, to blow open the um, classroom hours together as engagement interaction hours as opposed to any kind of um, just pure presentation stuff. So. And to have it be um, live. I think too, that you're intending to have folks come in and talk to one another and engage and still have the the energy 
uh, of a, a live a live community. That's right. All the the mistakes and and bad puns <laughs> and uh, everything else that you can count on in a regular classroom, you get to count on in a in an online in a remote learning setting. Monica, we end every conversation on the podcast by asking folks the same four questions. Mm -hmm. The first question is, what's your favorite place on campus? Well, I have to answer that by saying, what's my favorite place right now? Uh, I've been here for 15 years, at least, 16 years now almost. Uh, and so that's changed over time. Uh, and what I would say is uh, for the last couple of years, I've been walking into campus and I walk in from over by the field house. And there's something about this little stretch as you kind of walk under the copse of trees there in front of Weyerhaeuser over toward um, uh, Thomas uh, Hall that uh, for me has become kind of this gateway space uh, that's really lovely. There's something about um, the tranquility right there at the corner that suddenly bursts into the open campus. Uh, and I'm never lingering there. It's always a movement moment. Uh, but when I go home at the end of the night, that's also the moment where you see the mountain out when it's out. You just see this amazing shot in front of you. And so kind of a closing parting shot as I leave, uh, also capping the day, uh, no pun intended. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of my favorite spots at the moment. The second question is, what are you reading right now? Ah, uh, some, I, I always do a summer reread. So I take at least one book that I read in the past that I loved and I'm rereading it uh, to know how it feels in this moment in my life and our world. I've been reading Jesmyn Ward's Salvage the Bones again and enjoying that immensely. I highly recommend that. Uh, about um, Katrina uh, family in Louisiana, just pre-Katrina the few days before that. Uh, really amazing, amazing piece of fiction. Uh, and I also just recently finished A Thousand Moons by an uh, Irish author, Sebastian Barry, uh, about the uh, U.S. South in the moment um, post-Civil uh, War and uh, really thinking about the thorny issues of citizenship, race, inclusion, and violence in ways that were amazingly powerful. Highly recommend it, um, A Thousand Moons. Where is the best place to eat in Tacoma? My house. Uh, <laughs> isn't that for everybody's eating at their own houses? Um, no, I love to cook. So uh, even uh, in normal times, but especially now, that's been where I do most of my cooking. When I can go out, uh, I, I in the past would love to go to Tacoma Chejuan way down uh, in the you know Tacoma or Lakewood International District. Uh, but it seems like ages since I've been all the way out there. So uh, more plan with what I can make at home these days than than any restaurant out. So open invitation. Yeah, I'm coming over. <laughs> Monica, to wrap up last question, why is Puget Sound special? Mm, you know, for all those reasons that we can never describe where the person we love or the food we enjoy is, is special. It's a whole bunch of small things that um, by themselves probably aren't very remarkable, but add up to a lot. Um, one of the things I'm feeling, especially in this conversation in this moment is um, a kind of a trivial thing that everybody says, which is the community. Um, but what I'll say about it in particular is the kind of intimacy that we have in this community. Um, I feel it with students in terms of the way that we're able to interact and get to know one another um, and care about each other's trajectories um, reciprocally. Um, I also, with, with my colleagues, the kinds of conversations we can have, the kinds of um, 
planning and worrying and collaborating. We've been doing all summer thinking about what classes should be, uh, what our research should be, what our professional life should be in this context. So um, having that kind of intimacy with both students and faculty and staff uh, and the larger campus, just uh, on a daily basis in a myriad ways that I couldn't name with one adjective, um, make this place special. Monica DeHart, thank you so much for joining me on the Puget Sound Podcast. Thanks for having me, Elena. Thanks for listening to PS, the Puget Sound Podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast.